1: Whenever a critic complains about the ubiquity or the creative emptiness of superhero narratives in contemporary pop culture, fans argue back that mass entertainment is just the modern incarnation of our rich cultural heritage. Superheroes are mythology, and fandom is folklore. Is this really true, or is this just a way to flatten the complexities of traditional art while giving commercial media a spiritual significance it does not deserve? In this episode of Right Good, we are joined by author Carlo Yeager-Rodriguez, host of Podside Picnic. Carlo, why is this topic so near
2: and dear to your heart? We've talked a little bit offline about you know I've been working on this essay for apparently months now, and I started basically because I wanted to talk about this type of issue, and I just realized that it's it's such a broad concept, and it covers so much ground that I, I just got to a point realized that it was going to be more compl- like more complicated than than what I was trying to do at the moment, and set it aside and you know, as luck would have it these past two years, I've been writing really slow. I don't know why. Who knows? Know. There's no <laughs> I, reason. Anyone who wouldn't feel extremely
1: inspired to write and and focus on things over the past two years is probably a jerk and we should make fun of them.
2: <laughs> but yeah, I mean, other than that, I don't know about you, but I grew up like reading whatever the Greek myths were that were included in learning textbooks. I, I definitely remember having this series of reading workbooks that incorporated like this weird, semi creepy concept that these kids were following like this the string. Um, oh. and and they would keep on running into different mythological figures and they had a guide and so on and so forth. And, as you know, I grew older, obviously, these are grade school versions of the Greek myth. So they left out stuff about Zeus being a, a sex creep and and right. all the icky parts and stuff that's like violent and or sexual. You grow up and you you find the other stuff and you realize, oh, there there's more to it. And even the stuff that we're getting now is probably not even as deep as your ancient greek person would have known or at least in their area there were different aspects of different of the the greek deities and all sorts of weird things that were regional and so on and so forth and uh, i remember also uh realizing getting into lord of the rings that oh like maybe i mentioned to my dad <laughs> philly uh, philly raised super catholic used to go to latin mass and i told him one day that well he asked me why i like to read lord of the rings so many times and i leveled with him and i said look it's sort of like myth it's sort of like the bible and he's like wait the bible's a myth and to his credit he didn't like get super agitated about it he just wanted to sort of hear out my reasoning even though he didn't agree with it so kudos to him for you know being a good parent in that particular regard
1: right right but but why in particular did you want to write about this topic about the hey superheroes maybe they're not modern mythology. Like why is this topic in particular?
2: Well, why so... did it almost inspire you to write an essay? <laughs> almost. Almost. <laughs> um I got halfway there. I'll say that in the past, I've suffered from being a little glib and like, ah, you make a joke and you're like, well, such and such thing is fanfic. Ha ha. You know, get over yourself. But that was before the MCU was really roaring. That engine is Mm -hmm. just keep, keeps on going. And now I've changed my mind in part because that same sort of sentiment has been used to just steamroll basically anything that any criticisms you might have about the mco specifically are called oh well no no see these are our modern myths and i'm like i'm sorry i mean i get the sentiment you're trying to get here and I, i think i understand the broad idea you're trying to convey but one first off it flattens a lot of stuff that was used to be collective storytelling rather than this is a company who has shareholders and CEOs and VPs and all these executives that have now decided collectively not the people. This is for this is a top down type of mythology, not only fomented, but also we're forced to buy. To keep up with it. And that's not how that ever worked before. Plus, I don't know if anyone's ever tried to watch a a Marvel movie specifically. I'm sure that Warner does the same thing. But Marvel uh, movies, if you try to watch them in any form that is not exactly above board, uh, they have bots. I mean, I don't even have to get into less than legal means watching a movie. I could just say... Include a clip that that Marvel has not approved or Disney has not approved on uh, YouTube or even Twitter, and it'll immediately be requested to be taken down. Right, Uh, right. So if anything,
1: the only mythology they're similar to is OT level three of Scientology, where if you say it and you're not allowed to, you get your ass sued. Whereas uh, for all its many flaws, the Catholic Church will not sue you for quoting the Bible you're allowed to reprint a passage of it.
2: You can do that. The The funny thing in here is that you can possibly do it. It's also arbitrary in the sense that to a certain extent, it's to the, the corporation's credit or to the corporation's benefit, I should say, that you're just basically propagating their signal out there.
1: That and... If you're gonna call something in a glib kind of funny way, oh, that's this is mythology. This is whatever. This is fa- oh, this is just fan art. It's one thing, but if you're actually sincerely saying it as a way to justify this one entertainment monopoly's over all other forms of culture, that's deeply disturbing. It's saying we don't need all that other mythology because we have Marvel, and that's just as good as your traditional mythology that was passed on through your ancestors for centuries, this thing's just as good. So if this new thing swallows the old thing, it's fine. You don't need that old stuff. You don't need it. You got, you got, you got uh, Disney. It's fine. You got the mouse.
2: That goes to the second point that I was going to make, which is that a lot of the people that you hear saying this, I, I have to wonder how many of them actually benefit in some way, shape, or fashion they may not be direct employees of these media conglomerates, but they may derive profits from, you know, oh, we need, this is a fan site that derives some sort of profits from something. Mm-hmm. And that's our main thing. And it's the same sentiment that you see amongst, especially the YA, the really obnoxious YA authors that will tell you that you don't need to read any other books Uh, classics because there's all that racism and misogyny and Mm -hmm. so on and so forth in them. So There's definitely
1: no racism in the Disney Corporation.
2: No, not at all. There's
1: absolutely no history of problematic racial stereotyping in any of Disney's important properties. And there's definitely no sexism there. There's no sexism in the fact that the 3D animation the company uses gives every single female character the exact same face. While male characters are allowed to have different shapes, different sizes, different facial structures, all of the female characters have the same exact fucking face.
0: Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm.
1: There's definitely nothing misogynistic about that.
2: No. I mean, there's also nothing misogynistic about waiting until the 20 sometieth movie to actually have the first Marvel woman superhero. After right. she died. Yes. Well, no, no, she that's, fucking died. That's, that's, uh, that's Black Widow. This is all uh, right. Oh, right. That's Captain, Captain Marvel. Marvel. I forgot. And, and to be fair, back when the first Avengers movie came out, there was a lot of fan clamor for a Black Widow movie. And it, it does feel spiteful that they decided to wait until she was a dead character in the MCU to give her her own standalone movie. It was... It, I watched that. I didn't want to, but I, I watched it. It's, it was a movie. Yes. It, it was it, a movie. That's it's, my
1: review of Black Widow.
2: Yeah. I mean, and it's weird <laughs> because there are these moments where you're like, oh, look, there's going to be acting in this. And I was like, no, no. Okay. Mm-hmm. We're done with that. It's now on to the next Let's se- listen to four sentence. different bad Russian accents.
1: At the same time, let's do it. But anyway, we're getting off topic. So let's go back to this notion of superheroes as modern mythology. I'm gonna take a controversial stance and say no, superheroes are not actually modern mythology. And one of the biggest reasons why is as you touched upon the notion of collective folklore versus privately owned intellectual property. Superhero narratives, Disney products, most of our contemporary entertainment media is dominated by franchises, and these franchises are intellectual property that belongs to somebody else, a corporation, overwhelmingly a white cis male-ran corporation, if you're worried about diversity there, whereas collective folklore was owned by no one. Or everybody collectively. No, nobody owned Cinderella. Nobody, nobody owns the Chupacabra. Nobody owns that stuff. It's just collective. So, there's no official canon. If, if a Spider-Man's IP holder decides that, I don't know, Spider-Man is blonde now. Then Spider-Man is blonde now. You can't decide that. Right. You you can't do anything about that if 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 they decide that Peter Parker's dead, that if Peter Parker has a hook for a hand, then Peter Parker has a hook for a hand now, and that that's what he is. He has a hook for a hand because that's what the intellectual property owner says. I suppose in in religion, you'll have the the official religious dogma, you'll have the official religious take on it. But even within one religion, there's usually different interpretations and and a whole lot of discussion on interpreting one passage or another. Whereas with intellectual property, what the IP holder says it is, that's what it is. And I'm sorry, but your head Canon isn't actually Canon. I know you can write as much fanfic as you want. You can decide I'm going to ship this character. I'm going to ship that character. But unless the IP holder says these two are a couple, then they're not a fucking couple in the official canon. And there's not a goddamn thing you can do about
2: that. Right, right. This is the usual MO, right? That door, even when we're talking about the MCU, which is owned by Disney, and Disney has their own history of, oh, all those fairy tales. We sanded them down and made them very wholesome for, quote, family viewing, end quote, which has a very particular definition in when used right. in that fashion. And so now most people who wouldn't know any better think that, oh, so Cinderella, that's, oh, it's so nice. You left out the metal as fuck parts where her sister tried to jam the foot on her, the glass slipper on her own foot. It's so, and she was so desperate to marry the prince that she chopped off parts of her foot to get it in there. Or the other sister who could was forced to wear iron shoes that were heated and dance until she's dead. You know, those are not included in the Disney one. So no one, So everyone's very surprised when those show up because they, they do exist.
1: Right. And there are regional variations on, on folktales. There are always regional variations on folktales. Like just, let's take uh, La Llorona, this traditional ghost story in, in Latin America there are a ton of different variations on how did she lose her children? What happened?
0: Mm-hmm.
1: Did she drown them on purpose? Did they get lost and die? Were, was she having an affair? Was was she raped or something? There are tons of variations on that. And there's no one right way. And it's free for anyone to do. If you want to make a La Ulurna movie, you can do that. But yeah. if you want to make a Spider-Man movie, uh, you better have a lot of money. And you'd better be able to to do what the IP holder wants it
2: to be. It's funny you bring up Spider-Man because there's two stories that are attached to, to Spider-Man that immediately spring to mind. Obviously, the first one is the poor parents of the of little boy who died. I forget, he got a disease or something. Yeah, he had
1: a very rare genetic condition and he died really young.
2: Yeah, he died like at six or seven or something like that. It's very tragic yeah. in and of itself, but the parents... Knew like his entire world was Spider Man, he loved Spider Man. And so, then when they decided to basically make a headstone with a Spider Man on the headstone, and I forget if they removed the headstone and they were forced to petition like Disney directly or the company directly, I forget which company it is exactly. I think it was still under Disney at that point, right? It was still Um, under Disney. And they said that they did not want to approve of it because they felt very bad about their loss, but they didn't want to approve of it because it would mar their image. And you're like, yeah. What?
1: The a, a spokesperson quoted in the BBC said they wanted to preserve the innocence and magic of the characters, and putting it on a dead kid's grave would not preserve the innocence and magic of Spider-Man. So there's your fucking folklore. There's your modern folklore. Actual folklore, you can use it in a grief ritual, and that's fine. You don't have to ask
2: permission. Right. And I do want to circle back to that because that's one of the three important aspects of myth. But the second part of the Spider-Man thing is that I believe it's Renegade Cut had a really great uh, video about the Sony MCU feud about Spider-Man and like they were like wrangling over it after the, the second Spider-Man, their, their joint Spider-Man venture of Spider-Man homecoming and then Spider-Man far from home Uh, at that point, far from home was the point where they started the, both companies were wrangling over control of the character and see the, the thing here is, and I'm, I'm just remembering this recent op-ed that Annalie Newitz had in the New York Times where they had included a fan consultant that works with lots of these brands. And it, it just, honestly, this is when you're talking about like, well, it's top down, but it, a lot of these companies do have these consultants that will then do be the fan whisperers, right? And mm. I am positive that po- part of this has to be paying people to write blogs about it. like that was your old that was your parent spider-man this is a brand new spider-man that now has a hook on his hand because it's promoting disability diversity which this sounds reactionary coming like at, because i'm making fun of it but really this is a tactic it's, it's really a tactic it's bleak and and cynical i i just find it that oh like you were saying do you want to have spider-man with a hook hand well now we're, we're promoting this unalloyed good and it's like no you just wanted to do something different I don't know so then the 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 thing that I I wanted to talk about regarding there's three basic mythic purposes one being etiolo- etiological which is basically explaining how things are so you know just so stories right like the Rudyard Kipling uh, sure how how here's how like. the
1: leopard got his spots so that's yeah. one so we are talking just to be clear we are talking about the four functions of actual mythology. One is explaining how things are.
2: Okay. Yeah. I mean, three, three, sorry. Three. There's psychological myths, which then are, you know, personalized to tell why people feel a certain way about certain things. Yeah. Yeah. The rainbow across the sky symbolized God's covenant with Noah, that he wouldn't destroy the world ever, ever again. Okay, that makes me feel good, because when I see rainbows, that means that I feel, I feel assured that the world won't end. And then the last one is the one that really hits home for me, because this is the one that's crossed out, apparently, if we're, if we're going by the, the Spider-Man on the Headstone story, which is chthonic myths. How do people cope with destruction, death, and dying? Mm. And given that brands are a going concern and they're profit, there's profitable. And as long as they're profitable, you cannot let them die. Right. So then if your characters are brands, guess what? They can never die. Right. This is immediately countered by the fact that Tony Stark, the most asshole character, uh, Protagonist in the entire MCU died at the end of uh, what is it, Avengers Endgame or whatever? But who cares? That actually goes back to what was to what I was talking about before, which is that his contract was up, and they weren't really ready to. Neither party was ready to re-up. Disney MCU probably did not want to pay him the extra money that he would probably be asking for. And to be fair, what? 10 20 like almost 15 years uh of doing mcu movies or being just on the hook for just doing those types of movies yeah i'm pretty sick of it and wants to go do something else yeah exactly right go count this money or whatever i'd like to be in a good movie again that might be fun it's countered by the fact that tony stark dies right so he dies Black Widow dies as well, right? Okay, but I'm just saying that's all then woven back into the idea that the story. that's it's the story that's important, and it's not, it, it's it's rather skillfully done, I'll say, but it's it's really that their contracts ran out. It's not necessarily teaching us anything about uh, death or dying that uh, is is really good, uh, honestly, because Tony dying at the uh, appointed time sacrificing himself for everyone has all sorts of different messages encoded into it, right? First off, the idea th- that people should die f- sacrificing themselves for others, not a bad idea, but this is a billionaire who visited death upon everyone until like five years ago in, in the the story timeline, right? Th- there's probably still illegal weapons of his being sold around the world. <laughs> so it inculcates this idea that because he was a billionaire and therefore he was a great man and he sacrificed himself. It's a very, I guess, white saviory type of idea is what I'm trying to go for here. Mm. That's sort of embedded into that whole, the purpose behind it. I see. Okay. And no one really grieves him. Like Supposedly Peter Parker later on grieves him because he was a dad figure. I, I watched those movies. I don't know how... Uh, you think that he's a good guy. <laughs> he treated you like a dick. <laughs> like it's, it's really, it doesn't make a lot of sense, but you know, that's the way it is.
1: All right. I, I, I would stress also how many times has Superman died and come, hmm. none of these characters are really fucking dead.
0: Yeah. I they're mean, coming I, back.
1: They're going to, they're going to do a reboot or a, re- a prequel or something. They're, they're coming back. It's not over. He'll, There will still be an Iron Man in the comics. There will still be Iron Man cartoons. There will still be Iron Man, whatever. So Iron Man isn't dead. He's not... This is Superman's not dead, even though he died a dozen times. So whatever. The point is they can't really die, and so they can't really teach us about death. Right. They just don't
2: die. And you can only try that trick so many times before. Like I, I don't know about anyone else, but I remember... like. You get to the end of a story cycle, and then it reboots, and it cheapens the feelings that you felt beforehand. All and right. you're like, "Well, well, then screw this. Why, why we do, do it?" It's it's sort of like the soap opera logic, right? There's this really funny, uh, somewhat problematic movie called Soap Dish back in the '90s, I believe, where basically the main character had been killed off because they had pissed off the other main character, the America's Sweetheart character, right? And she didn't want to know anything about him anymore. So they have to now write him back in for some reason. And they're like, well, the, the, he was decapitated. And you're like, I don't know. Just write some sort of scene where some groundbreaking new surgery has uh, brought him back to life. You know, and he's been, he had amnesia. Yeah, It's that type, of, that type of writing. And it, it's just meant to put a, a very quick Band-Aid and just keep the content churning.
1: Mm. In other words, it's not for a meaningful purpose. For instance, usually there's mythology about death and rebirth and death and resurrection, but it's usually trying to tell us something about the human spirit or it's some sort of about the seasons, about nature and cycles of death and and fertility and, and planting and harvest, what does Superman dying and coming back really teach us about ourselves, about the universe, about the human spirit? Fuck all. It was this is a stunt that's gonna sell some comics. And here's another stunt that's gonna sell some more comics.
2: Yeah, why I mean, did Iron I, Man
1: I, die? Because Robert Downey Jr. wanted to do something else with his time. That's why he's dead. It's yeah, not here much. to teach us anything. It it's just a thing that happens. This is a business decision and not a meaningful psychological or spiritual lesson.
2: Yeah, I think it's just completely entwined with this idea specifically of the U.S.'s idea of American optimism, you know, this can-do attitude. Like, for instance, you can't grieve because, well, you've got to be out there and their death has to mean something. It, it means something to me right now. It just doesn't mean what you think it means, which is I should be back at work <laughs> doing stuff because that's what you think it should mean. And, and it reminds me, I don't know if you've seen Mad Men at all. Of course I have. Yeah. Okay. So do you remember, like, this is the the pilot episode where they're doing the pitch for Lucky Strikes after it's been revealed that Lucky Strikes, like all cigarettes have been revealed, that they, they were paying off doctors and so on and so forth to prevent people knowing that they gave cancer. You know, it's, it kills people. Right. And he has that psychiatrist come in and give her estimate that you should lean into the idea of the death drive. Like the people who are going to smoke, they're going to smoke anyway. So fuck it. Just lean into it. You want to kill yourself? Look cool doing it with a a cigarette in your mouth. Don Draper just throws that in the garbage can and he comes up with the most chilling thing ever at the last minute. He's like, it's okay. It's toasted. You just sidestep the entire issue and you say it's toasted because it doesn't matter. People are gonna smoke. He says exactly the same things that the psychiatrist did, even though he rejected it. He just coded it in a an optimistic tone, which is basically America's like a, a billboard by the side of the road where you're speeding along that tells you it's okay. Whatever you're doing, it's okay. And I don't know about you, but that gave me a chill the first time I saw it, and again when I've rewatched it, because it's like. Jesus Christ, that's the encapsulation of American marketing, isn't it? Yeah. And so that's what specifically I feel like in a commercial storytelling endeavor, that's the only thing they have to tell you about death and dying. It's that keep on trucking. It's okay. Whatever you're doing, it's okay. But it's not about the fact that you've sat down amongst everyone else who's lost someone and that morning bench stretches out back into eternity since the beginning of time, that type of thing. Mm-hmm. It's the dumb, it's the dumb person that says they're in a better place now. And you're like, no, I don't give a shit about that. Honestly, that is the stupidest thing I've ever heard.
1: So why don't we talk a little bit about what superheroes actually teach us as opposed to what mythology taught us. There were the three things that mythology was supposed to help us with and teach us. And I've been told from superhero fans that no, they teach us morality. They teach us how to be heroic. Superheroes teach us how to be good people. But I don't know. I personally don't think I've seen that borne out. I, I Just America as a collective society we love these stories about superheroes, but we sure don't fucking act like superheroes. I don't <laughs> see us being, as a nation, unselfish, heroic, courageous people at all. I mean, we're, we've got a lot of people who are screaming because they just didn't want to wear a mask on an airplane. Like, that's who we are. So I'm not the person to think of this, but what I'm worried is the message that superhero stories teach us is that collective action is pointless and we need to wait for a Superman to save us. And I'd like to consider the lesson of Christopher Nolan's Batman movies. Remember where he finds some schlubby guys dressed as Batman and says, stop trying to do the thing that I do. I have the super armor. You're just some schmuck with a baseball bat. In other words, I am allowed to do this because I have the authority because I'm a billionaire You're a regular person, so you can't do what I do. Wait for a Superman to save you. And I can't help but suspect that that message has penetrated into our consciousness. When you look at the way we deal with politics, it's pure hero worship.
0: Mm.
1: The way Americans talk about their favorite politicians I mean, Trump is a perfect example. His followers are almost like cultists. They love him. They really think he's going to save the world. They have these wild theories about what he's still going to do for them. We've got QAnon, which is basically a cult that worships Trump as this, this godlike figure. But liberals do it, too, the way supporters talk about Obama The way, well, no one really talks about Biden that way, (laughs) the way some of them would talk about RBG, notorious RBG, and she's going to save us. And I'd give my organs for RBG and there's, and that's it. All you can do is throw your support, whether that's your vote or just your emotional energy behind this larger than life political figure who's going to save you, but you can't do anything. You can't go out, you definitely can't do direct action because that's dangerous. You can't, maybe you'll march with a pussy hat once or twice, but you'll give that up. You can't do collective action. You can't do mutual aid in your community. What you can do is post some memes about how cool Elizabeth Warren is and how she'd win if you'd fucking vote for her. And then you cast a vote every couple of years. And that's it. Mm -hmm. Like... You're waiting for a superhero to rescue you.
2: I think part of it is that politics has become a fandom in and of itself, where it suffers from the same issues, right? That there's lots of people who don't let you criticize. Uh, If you point out anything, they'll scream at you or, you know, block you or just... In any case, you can't possibly criticize someone, you know, even even if you have valid points without somebody getting really upset about that if we want to tie that into sort of superheroes as this icon i always think of it in the sense that like superman is from another planet but there, there are a lot of superheroes that derive their powers from weird explosions chemicals and stuff like that and it's it's a weird technological deification hmm. if that makes sense where you become transformed into an almost deity type figure who can now, I don't know, uh, stretch your arms or fly or jump around or whatever, you know, or run real fast or whatever. Instead of being born a deity or perhaps struck by lightning and that turned you into something or having some sort of bloodline with a deity, it's just technology has something to do with it. Um, Or, or a science fictional concept, like for instance, Superman was originally from Krypton, but yada, yada, yada. But the red sun versus the, the yellow sun, now he's stronger here because of that or something. Okay. I don't know if that makes a lot of sense to you, but maybe I'm just feeling my way through that particular thought. So it's sort of this weird thing where then you are also mapping this deification onto political figures as well. Hell, there's a documentary about charter schools called Waiting for Superman, which made me think of, which is what you made me think of when you're talking about Waiting for Superman earlier. Yeah. Yeah. I agree with you that this is essentially all of the superhero, uh, all the superhero really teaches you is great man theory. You you shouldn't do anything on your own necessarily. You, You need the help of someone greater than you. And weirdly, a lot of these people are very wealthy people. Uh, the superheroes are as well as the real world ones are
1: right. And I can't help, but well, I I don't think they're necessarily at fault for it, but I'm going to point out that if superhero media was was supposed to make us better, it didn't prevent Donald Trump, did it? it? This stuff is everywhere. It's been everywhere for 10 years. It did not stop Donald Trump from being elected. So if it's supposed to teach us to be kinder and braver, it sure didn't fucking
2: do the job. Maybe this is only American, like the evangelical idea that, well, it, you just didn't have enough faith. You didn't really try hard enough. That's why bad things happened to you. I guess that's the, what is it, the just world fallacy? You deserve, we all deserve Trump because we didn't really try hard enough. And, and you may actually see that on both sides of, of a debate. I, I don't think it had anything to do with that. It just had to do with the fact that people were... Yeah, like sadly, Obama was a disappointment to a lot of people. He promised change, it didn't happen. And so you throw your lot with the guy that's the wild card because fuck it. Why not? And I'm not saying that that's a great thing. And I am definitely not a fan of Donald Trump, who is a horrible human being, personally and as a president. But I can definitely understand the feeling because once you're at a point where you do not think that your individual actions matter fuck it why not throw in with the great man that that other people think they are
1: now before you said you wanted to talk about how there are three types of superhero yeah i'd like to expand on that you said basically the three types are superman batman and x-men could you develop that thought a little
2: bit Sure, I'm sure that I, I I will probably piss someone off. Uh, you missed my favorite, uh, the fast guy, um, but I was just off the top of my head. I thought you have Superman, which is an omni powerful type of benevolent cop figure who is out there looking over us. And uh, I I don't know if that's comforting to anybody. It's not necessarily comforting to me. Then there's a Batman figure who is a self-made vigilante who who actually needs to be a vigilante because those darn laws, they get in the way of cap- capturing criminals, you know. And so then he's actually tacitly, like Batman is definitely supposed to be an antagonist of the uh, Gotham police force, but not really. Like a lot of them just agree with his tactics, uh, which is honestly realistic. Then there's like the X-Men, which is basically, it's a genetic thing, right? You're born with a weird thing. You you now shoot laser beams from your eyes or whatever. But the idea uh, of the X-Men is that they were countered like Charles Xavier is countered by Magneto. And in the DNA of the X-Men itself, they were supposed to be stand-ins for Martin Luther King and Malcolm X, respectively. And I gotta say, I haven't followed it in a long time, but for a long time, Charles Xavier wanted the mutants to be respectable mutants. You couldn't take direct action or take, you know, be part of any violent uprisings or anything of the sort. And that incarnation of the X Men, it's basically yeah, Magneto's right. You got to take power where you can, and no one's going to really just let you. Oh, we we you've been respectable enough. Come come in and sit at our table now. No you got to force your way out to the table. They won't do it, they won't let you there anyway. otherwise. And that was basically my thinking, the idea that then Charles Xavier is also weirdly policing a lot of where the boundaries of acceptable mutants uh, are, which is not exactly what MLK was trying to do, but that's where the story took that's where the story took Charles Xavier. I may need to develop that further, but I think that there's something there, I feel. So, yeah, overall, I just think that mostly superheroes are supposed to be vigilante figures that are ostensibly there to right wrongs. But who's deciding this? Were they voted by it? Like, did right. anyone choose them? <laughs> they just did this on their own? Right. Like, did they hold a vote? No, oh, a sort of a problem yeah,
1: which again, there's nothing wrong with them if it's just this is an escapist fun thing that's fine, but when you start trying to impose this adult seriousness on it, then it ends up with horrifying implications. There's nothing wrong with watching a Superman show it's fine it's a it's a fun show, it's a fun story about a very special guy who flies around and beats up baddies. It's fun, but when you start to sincerely say that this has something to tell us about ourselves and about the world, that's where you run into problems because it's just not adequate to deal with the complexities of human society and the complexities of death and the complexities of morality. It's just not set up for that. years a little bit to talk a little bit about the loss of collective folklore. I hammer on this a whole lot on this podcast about the difference between collective culture versus privately owned IP, but I can't stress that enough as this dividing line between, say, folklore and fandom, the defining line between mythology and superhero stories. And I think as a culture, we haven't really coped with the loss of the commons. I think a lot of contemporary people don't understand that there was once this thing called collective folklore. They People will try to say that fandom and fan theories are the equivalent of that. But again, they're not because maybe the fans collectively own these fan theories but the, there is still this level above you, the corporation that owns the IP. And that's just not the case with traditional folklore. Yeah, and I mean, it follows this, this shift in intellectual property. It also follows a shift in actual physical property. So once upon a time, private property didn't exist. It didn't always exist. There used to be a time when there was just common land. And you could just go there. And you didn't have to pay and you didn't get arrested. If you wanted to, if your sheep needed to eat some grass, you'd just take them out to the commons and your sheep would eat grass there. And that was that, but gradually over the, over the centuries, we saw the rise of private property of fences. And in the wild west, we lost the wild west to barbed wire. And we've seen that carry out with culture. An intellectual property. We still have the public domain, but I think there's been more and more a desire to bury it, or to replace it with contemporary work. And we've lost this commonality, this collective ownership of folklore and mythology. Well, with this, would... this privately owned stuff, whose job is overall to turn a profit. Right. And that to to call to call a product that exists to make the owner money mythology, if you really believe that, that's saying an awful lot about the vacuousness of American culture.
0: Mm-hmm.
1: To say that say SpongeBob SquarePants is legitimately sacred is legitimately your sacred myths and the foundation of your culture. I like SpongeBob, but. I don't attribute spiritual significance to SpongeBob.
2: I was going to say that if you want to test how uh, open that this new modern folk folklore is, just try to publish something that includes IP and make a profit off of it. Now, to be clear, that doesn't mean that like stuff like fanfic and stuff that doesn't necessarily have to exist to make profit which is another thing that's altogether different. But if you wanted to test how really this argument falls apart, try to put something that has Disney or any other IP. We, we've harped a lot on Disney, but really any other IP, SpongeBob even, like Nick, Nickelodeon's uh, IP. Just try to do some fanfic on SpongeBob and try to publish it for a profit. You'll immediately get a, a cease and desist because that's not yours to do. Now, if you go back and try to write a retelling of the original Cinderella tale, you can do that because it's in the public domain. And I think part of the, there's that myth of the tragedy of the commons, which is used in, I believe it's like an economic essay. Right. And I think that the issue is that the tragedy of the commons presented that, oh, well, see, they needed to put fences and to regulate the commons because you know, somebody would eventually, you know, hypothetically, somebody might eventually let their sheep eat the grass down to the roots, and then it would ruin it for everyone. And if I'm not mistaken, that, is, that never really happened in the commons. <laughs> Even if it did, it was something that was communally then decided what to do about it. And by then, see, I feel like part of the surrendering of the commons, maybe not way back when, but even now, like if we then surrender the commons, that just lets us off the hook for responsibility, protecting a common good. And then it lets us all be just happy little consumers and somebody else makes decisions about how much I get.
1: I'd also point out that since we... Eliminated the commons. I don't think anybody could be delusional enough to look at the way we're using our land and say, "Yeah, that's sustainable." Mm. Private owner, private land ownership. Yeah, it's doing really good right now. We our environment's very good. We have things are honestly, we could see an example of this happening right in Puerto Rico right now. Contemporary Mm. in Puerto Rico, all beaches are public. There's no such thing as a private beach. You cannot build anything private on a beach. However, developers in Puerto Rico are currently trying to privatize beaches and build private structures like resorts or luxury apartment complexes on these beachfronts that are by law public. Now, in one such place, a hotel resort wanted to build a private pool on a beach which I I don't know how to stress how fucking stupid that is because there's an ocean literally 50 feet away that you can go swim in, but that's what the patrons expect, so they had to build this private pool on a beach. While they were digging the foundation for it, they found a, a spawning ground for sea turtles. And it was not the private developers that decided to protect these sea turtles. It was... Rican activists who collectively decided we want the sea turtle to have a place where she can lay her eggs more than we want some dipshit to have a place where he can set up a pool so that he can charge money to people to get in this pool. And a group of activists just collectively tore it down, just tore down this construction site, just disassembled it with their bare fucking hands. So that that's what I think of when... We talk about the commons. I think it's incredibly misguided, this idea that private land ownership would result in much, much better land stewardship than public or collective ownership, because here's a living illustration of it. The private landowners would have been happy to to just destroy this turtle breeding ground. But it was just local people who live here and have pride in, in their land and who've collectively decided, hey, the beach is fucking cool. Everybody deserves it. And have said, no, no, you can't have this. The animals need it. We like the animals. We like the animals more than we like you fucking gringo tourists. Right. (laughs) And I'm deeply concerned that not only have we lost the commons in terms of land, we're in a space where we're losing the commons in terms of culture. We're mm -hmm. getting this over and over again. We're seeing these ideas that well the commons we people won't handle it well the all these public domain works they're problematic we need to get rid of them because they're very bigoted they're very sexist they're not queer enough which fucking laugh right there so that's why we need instead people to teach my ya books in school and that's why instead we need to we should show children fucking MCU authorized novelizations instead of all that bad Moby Dick and all those problematic old art. I really do think that we're trying to intellectually and culturally argue in favor of something like the tragedy of the commons and eliminate this old collective public domain stuff in favor of private for-profit IP because supposedly it's safer and supposedly it's a better way to cultivate people's minds and it'll bring us to the same hideous end that land privatization brought us to.
2: Even some of the stuff that has since probably been forgotten at the beginning of the pandemic, you remember those gigantic like piles of like potatoes and stuff like that, oh, well, this corporate farm now has to destroy all this because you can't just let it be out on the market. You're like, why not? There's people going hungry. You could give it away. I don't know. No, it's got to make a profit.
1: I do remember the story of a grocery store hiring armed guards to police their dumpster in case poor people went dumpster diving to go get the the food they'd thrown out.
0: Mm-hmm.
1: How fucked is that? Yeah, when well, you're guarding it's, it's, garbage. Yeah, I mean, that's it's where always, we are.
2: It's always couched in, well, we could be liable for. If somebody gets sick eating that and you're like, no, not, not, not really. (laughs) Also, what, what are you talking about? But yeah, it's a lot. There's been, and speaking of like, there has been some collective action to try to get supermarkets to stop doing that. But a lot of it has to be like at a local level. Oh, only this safe way will let you do that because the, the corporate head, the headquarters won't, won't budge. Maybe the local uh, manager may turn a blind, you know, turn away and not necessarily pay attention when somebody's dumpster diving. Uh, they don't care.
0: Hmm. Uh,
1: well, let's try and bring it back on topic. Uh, all right, Carlo, Carlo, did you know that Dante's Inferno? It's fanfic. It's oh, exactly no. the same. It's exactly the same as fanfic when. Dante wrote a brilliant political satire based on religion about Florentine politics of his era. That's exactly the same thing as when a Caucasian 14-year-old girl writes a story about Batman sucking Superman's dick. It's exactly the same, doing the exact same thing. And they're exactly the same... Because both of them borrow ideas from a different text. Did you know that? Did you know that any work of fiction that borrows a text, that borrows concepts or characters from another text, that is fan fiction? That's fan fiction. Did you know that?
2: Well, I'm glad that you mentioned that. It's very
1: clever that I'm pointing this out. I genuinely believe it. I truly, I'm not just saying that to make myself sound smart. I really do believe this 100% because I've read Dante's Inferno, me, the person claiming this.
2: Oh, So you, you ended up reading my <laughs> AU coffee shop about Virgil and Dante? That
1: yeah, just kind of holding hands and doing their adult coloring books together.
0: Yeah.
2: It's very yeah. queer. They, they talked a lot about going down to this ninth circle of hell, but I didn't want to upset anybody. Yeah. So they just talked about it. But yeah, like, honestly, I'll, I'll cop to have, using, have used that in, in the past, glibly as a joke. But now, yeah, I, I'm sort of offended by the idea because it's not. Like, no one owned, like, folklore that- No one owned the wove. devil. <laughs> yeah.
1: No one owned
2: hell. <laughs> See, that's that's why it's hell. It's a collective. <laughs>
1: it's a collective thing. No one owned these religious and cultural figures that Dante was dunking on. Yeah. Imagine if Dante had had to pay like licensing fees to whoever owned Virgil.
2: Oh god. Uh yeah, he had to actually Rome LLC it gives him a cease and desist <laughs> until he can pay licensing fees for the use of uh character eight a- from the Aenid. Uh yeah. <laughs> Jesus Christ. <laughs> Judas No hold on, hold on. He he did all sorts of fucked up shit because remember he, he gets into that limbo area and there's like Abraham and there's Homer and Ulysses. Well, actually, Ulysses isn't further down, but uh a whole bunch of other sort of different types of legendary cinematic universe characters. It's so many. He had to pay so much licensing for that. Yeah, he got sued super hard. That's that's why he left. Yeah. That's why he left Milan. And then he went and cat
1: personed Beatrice, and there was a whole another scandal about that. Ugh, rude. <laughs>
2: Yeah, I, I, I do have to admit that I, I have used that on occasion, but honestly, it, it's really fascinating because I honestly, I challenge anyone to look in the Bible for the the part where he's talking about the harrowing of hell. It doesn't exist because that was all sort of folklore is <laughs> made up by people trying to explain where Jesus went for three days before he rose.
1: Also, IP, corporate IP, doesn't exist here, did not did not exist there, did not exist, there was no such thing as corporate intellectual property in those days. These were the days of the creative commons, really. Everything was the commons intellectually, so no, it's not fanfic because fandom didn't exist. There's something I find deeply disturbing in referring to any kind of interest in anything cultural as a fandom, of this flattening of religion or spirituality into fandom. And what I will note is that the people who do this are at least careful enough not to apply it to other cultures. They have enough self-awareness to know that they'd probably be canceled if you referred to Buddhist monks being in the Buddha fandom. Or something that you'd probably, uh, people would probably kick your ass if you referred to, I don't know, indigenous people's beliefs and folklore as, oh, a fandom. Ah, I see. You're in the coyote fandom.
2: No, <laughs> shut the fuck up. Shut the fuck up. Oh, no, you fucking don't. Osama bin Laden. Was too. It was too far into the Wobbism fandom, and that's what caused them trouble, really.
1: Yeah, the whole thing is just like toxic fandom disputes. Ugh, it's so bad.
2: The thing that worries me, and if we can talk about the way that that then applies this present idea of consumerism and extends it backwards across time. Yeah, there uh, is to- a term
1: for that called presentism. It's the idea that... Well, it's basically applying the mindset of the present to everything. It's being unable to understand that people in ye olden days looked at the world differently than we do today. And I'm not saying that's better. I'm not saying that was worse. There were obviously things that were worse in the old days, but there are maybe were some things that were better in the old ways. But presentism is just this idea that Oh, this old thing and this new thing, they're exactly the same in every single way. They're they're a perfect analogy for one another, and that's horribly inaccurate. One really good example of that is sexuality. The present Mm -hmm. view of sexuality is very much more like an identity. I am a this. I am a that. In Roman times, for example, there wasn't really any concept of being straight or gay.
2: Sexuality was a thing you did, not a thing you were. Well, I think that there was a really interesting, I think it was a Chapo episode where Matt Christman was talking about how queerness only became what it is presently once it became something that you could market towards. Mm. And then it becomes a market that you can then sell objects to these individuals and then they can identify as it. I'm probably murdering how he said it. It, it probably sounded much smarter than that. But it it it's really sort of like this... Um, You're bisexual,
1: we will sell you a special chair that you can sit on more comfortably because you're bad at chairs, and some
2: cold brew. But don't forget the sofa. Because you
1: are a, yeah, that terrifying sofa. (laughs) Because you are a bisexual. That is what you are. That's not what you do. It doesn't matter what you do. This is simply what you are. This is your identity, unchanging, eternal this is the thing that defines you, and you are defined by this unchanging essence and not by your relationships and your actions and how you move throughout a community, which is something a lot more nuanced and, and ever-changing and complex. Than I am this one thing. Here is the box that I fit in. Here is the
2: category that you can stick me into. Right. And that, that then extends that neoliberal thought backwards towards through history so that you can only filter it through this weird neoliberal vision, right? This idea that, oh, well, see, they, they, that was a fandom, really. The Greeks arguing over the ineffable, ineffable aspects of Athena and discussing whether Homer got it right or not. See, that was a fandom. There's two fandoms trying to hash it out, you know? And I, I, I just find that really grim. Sorry, right. there
1: was that there was that headline everybody dunked on on Twitter that referred to the Arthurian legends as a franchise. Oh yeah, yeah, yeah. Because of the Green Knight coming out, the Green Knight came out, and someone said, "Oh, will there be more sequels in the Arthurian cinematic universe?" And everyone said, "Like fuck you, no, no." <laughs> and then there was that terrible article that like. That said that the Green Knight wasn't hot enough, which... Okay, first of all, how is this substantially different from alt-right creeps who get mad when, like, the new Laura Croft's tits aren't big enough? And secondly, maybe the Green Knight is hot enough, but you are not brave enough. Okay?
2: Some people like bears. like tree- Maybe
1: you are not brave enough to fuck the tree, man. Yeah.
2: That is on you. Like, if you don't like tree beard, what's wrong with you? Ask yourself that. That and just... Um.
1: The flattening of it, like, oh, this is what the Green Knight is. Okay, it's this medieval epic poem with tons and tons of complex symbolism and tons of it. Yeah, there is, I think, a homoerotic longing in in a large section of it, but it's also about Christianity and paganism. A huge part of it is about Christianity and paganism and the new film did such an interesting interpretation of it and in this one the interpretation is spoiler alert that it's the triumph of pagan nature over christian civilization which is a really really cool riff on it it's not a fucking slash fic though (laughs) right it's not the same that there's so much complexity to it and this writer wanted it filtered down to this one really really narrow narrow, tiny, tiny interpretation, which is so bleak. and, And I know it sounds like we're complaining about this. I know it sounds like we're being so cranky, like, well, what's the harm? What's the harm of saying Dante's Inferno is a fanfic? What's the harm of saying that The Green Knight is part of a franchise? When we do this, when we engage in this presentism, what we're doing is we're reinforcing the limiting of the imagination. When we describe... All culture, throughout all of human history, in the language of modern intellectual property, of a franchise, as a fandom, as a superhero story, we are starting to make it impossible to understand the human condition in any way that is not governed by capitalism. It's taking every other lens through which we might understand the world or the human soul and fucking smashing it. It's saying that there is nothing out there in the ether or nothing in there deep down in your soul. There's nothing in heaven or earth that can exist outside of the free market. And that is horrifying. That is spiritual death.
2: Yeah. I was listening recently to some of the people that are behind Bitcoin and whatnot. And they want to have everything like nature is now weirdly on some sort of ledger book and everything costs that meadow now has a cost to it in Bitcoin. And you're like, that is fucking horrifying. No, can that can that meadow just be a meadow for its own purpose? And no, it's got to be fucking flattened down into something that you can buy and sell and consume. Uh, it's, it's basically taking everything. Not just artistic endeavors, but everything, and just nano-machining it down into gray goo that is content. Yeah. And I am very disturbed by that idea.
1: Yeah, and and I do understand the common counter to this is, well, you know, religion is really destructive. Religion has done some bad things. I'm not going to deny that, of course. I'm not religious. I'm a fucking agnostic. But I do believe that human beings have a psychological need for the sacred. We do. It's probably irrational, but I think this is something that we need. And we can't pretend it. We can't make it go away. We can't eliminate it. We can't suppress it. It will come out in weird ways. And right now, I think we have this era in which little to nothing is sacred. Our our myths are superhero toys, and I think that we're like starving or screaming. We're not happy with that. And maybe that's why we have these bizarre geek reactionary movements. Why the alt-right, this neo-Nazi movement, basically came out of video games and comic books. I think that people have this stuff. We we have all this content and it's supposed to satisfy us because, well, that's as good as mythology, right? That's as good as folklore. It's just as good. But we know it's not. Deep down, it's not. It's not satisfying us. There's this hunger there, because we need to feel something greater and something sacred. And the new Ghostbusters reboot or whatever isn't fucking doing it for us.
2: Yeah, yeah. I mean it's 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 really it's really bleak. Um, I don't know. I don't know what to say. And I I also I would agree that this is. It's somewhat important, but it's not the biggest Im- the cultural aspects of this are really just a symptom of the politics that are upstream of it, I feel. And but they also feed they have like a, we're in this feedback loop because then people understand cultural objects and con- like the neoliberal project of making everything into something that's consumable making everything into some sort of content that you can just, you know, like shove in your eyes or mouth. And that's as far as we get. And I feel like what we're getting at here regarding, especially like where we're talking about, like the superheroes uh, previously is the fact that these are, you know, we only get this, you get these great men theory type of icons to play with and nothing else. And We're fighting amongst ourselves about this, and it's important, but it's also important to keep our eyes on the prize, I feel, and and understand that a lot of the people that are in charge of these IPs, the CEOs and the the billionaires that are actually making these stories, are really interested in making things feel like they've always been this way as well. So you shouldn't really worry too much about it.
1: Right. I do think that's part of why there's a tendency, there's this desire across the board to suppress old stuff. One of the reasons we're told is that it's problematic. Like Disney has put a lot of its older movies in the vault because they, a lot of those old movies do have these really racist segments. And I get that, but is that really to protect us or is that to protect the, ba- the brand? It's Disney. they're doing Their decisions are for money. They're doing this mm-hmm. stuff to protect their brand of being wholesome. And maybe maybe if a contemporary person stumbles upon this old stuff, they're going to think, maybe this corporation isn't my friend. Maybe I don't want to give them all of my money and swear fealty to them.
0: Mm-hmm.
1: And there's also a desire to get rid of old culture in general. Like on most streaming services, the majority of the movies on there are from the past 10, 15 years. It's a lot harder to find old movies from before like 2000. And I think that's a problem because pre-9-11 movies have a very different feel than post-9-11 movies. Pre-9-11 movies were really subversive in ways that post-9-11 movies aren't. So when we lose that, we lose the ability to look at an old movie and realize, like, wow, there was a time in America when a big-budget action movie could show the hero beating the shit out of cops. You could just do that. Yeah. Blade. Blade. (laughs) You could have a mainstream action movie where the hero is a black man attacking a cop with a sword holy shit Yep. i don't think we could do that anymore so when you watch a thing like that your brain goes wow why can't we have that again and maybe you'll decide to have it again
0: but yeah, or, in, or in
1: general it's just trying to limit our ability to think in ways that we don't already think in to see the world in other ways than what we're seeing there's that george orwell quote it's a little corny but he who controls the present controls the past. He who controls the past controls the future. And I do see that that's what's happening in a cultural way.
2: I mean, to your point regarding older movies, I, I was rewatching Candyman, the 1991 92 one. Oh, and yeah. uh, there's that sequence where, where Virginia Madsen's character, uh, in, in the course of interviewing people in the Korean Green, none of the black people that she's talking to say that the cops ever show up. But the moment she gets a bruise, on her face right. oh, there's like a, a, a they sent out a brigade to get her and it's like could you imagine like some like a movie right now trying to have that sort of a nuanced take without it becoming like a weird like oh both sides type of bullshit it's just simply there yeah she's she actually comments on it and she's like oh suddenly everyone's here Right. it's it's wild it's, it's it's really wild and yeah the, the superhero media is not really doing it. it it really is very interested in preserving things as they are in part uh, because a lot of those movies do have to get some sort of okay from the Pentagon regarding their scripts And that's a whole other issue I mean right if we can go back to presentism a bit yeah it's also just this very subtle way of just also just it applying this cultural imperialism on the past and it's, right. it's just no not like medieval england was not like just like current day us Fuck off right it's not it's not that
1: and again while we understand that the past had a lot of disgusting and negative and offensive things about it there were good things the fact that there was no such thing as private property through millennia of human history if you read media that shows you that maybe you start to think huh maybe we don't need it anymore this yeah. this is a blip in our history why this wasn't always here we could live without this concept and yeah a lot of times old movies are a lot more sexist or a lot more racist but they're also Very anti-capitalist, the film noir genre of the late 1940s. Every single movie, the bad guy's a businessman and the cops are corrupt. Mm
0: -hmm.
1: A lot of these movies were directly made by socialists or people who study who learned how to become directors in socialist theater collective groups. And there's this real streak of anti-capitalism running through the old stuff, which you don't find much of these days. There's I mean, really
2: good shit in a lot of old movies. Even even one of your faves, which sure is propaganda, but Columbo, all of his cases have to do with rich people.
1: Yeah, all the rich, they're always evil rich people. And he's this kind of grubby sort of working class guy ambling a into cut. a rich guy's zillion dollar mansion and dropping cheap cigar ash on the expensive 1970s day glow orange shag carpet it's so fucking good <laughs> just so one more question
2: they they feel like they've scooted him out the door and he turns around to the last man. just uh, just came to my mind one more question one more thing
1: I, i'm gonna ask you a question and i'm gonna drop a hot dog on the floor <laughs> it's so good I fucking love him
2: also, it was stinking up your place with, place with fucking Dutch Masters cheap ass. Those horrible
1: cigars. Garbage cigars. Um, yeah, oh, uh, it's so great.
2: But yeah, it's really interesting to see that now you can't possibly have something that critiques cops or the military or anything without it. Uh, I think the best you can get is that uh, the criticism that, yeah, sure. X place may be bad or or America may be bad, but you know, that other place that these superheroes are in, it's worse. That's why we sent them there. And you're like, No, (laughs) no, how about neither? Right, right. So, take
1: interest in the past, take interest in public domain stuff, look at old shit, old shit's good shit. Watch some black and white movies, and read some actual fucking myths because you're going to find they're a lot more interesting and weird and horny and meaningful than something that was invented to sell toys.
2: Yeah, and to be fair, I don't want to be a huge downer. I I do think that this can, you know, we this can and must at some point come to an end. Yeah, always. You know
1: what? People already have Marvel fatigue. They're sick of it. Yeah. People, well, I mean, it, it's getting diminishing returns with this stuff. It's a trend. It's going to die out
2: eventually, hopefully pretty soon. But <laughs> it's like that quote that Ursula K. Le Guin had, right? The, we think that this is going to go on forever, as did the divine right of kings. And I think that there's wisdom at that. Yeah. But we have to do something about it. It's not just, you know, we can't just wait. We can't just succumb to it.
1: You can't just submit <laughs> to it
2: a superhero is not gonna to come to save us for the from this. We gotta do it ourselves.
1: Yeah, pretty much we do. All right. So before we go, Carlo, where can our listeners find your work?
2: Well, I've been published in several places, uh, including my last story, which includes a completely made up mythology of my own speaking of in Beneath Ceaseless Skies, a story, a novelette called As the Short of the Tides So Blood Calls to Blood.
1: That story is so interesting. I've shown it to other people and they always ask, Oh, what what culture does this mythology come from? And when I, I tell them none, the author made it up, they go, Holy fucking shit. I thought yeah. it was like a real myth and stuff
2: yeah that's the talent right you can make up your own shit and if it sounds sufficiently I don't know it, it has to have certain aspects to it and it can't all be nice I mean these are not nice myths there's lots of blood and gore in them so yeah. that well, might be why
1: your myths use motifs that are super common in lots and lots of myths like a strange birth some some sort of weird baby there's a lot of weird babies in mythology or something about sweet water salt water yeah that's a huge huge thing in, in greek myths and in just sumerian myths and tons and tons of myths there's sweet water garbage water
2: yeah and weird babies tiamat and enki in uh the sumerian right uh or is that Babylonian? I'm not sure.
1: Uh, anyway, it's more Babylonian, but there's a Sumerian equivalent to Tiamat. It's 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 super. It's hard to pin it down again because it's mythology. So it's like, okay, well, depending on the era, <laughs> right, right, she's right, right. either a, a benevolent, mysterious mother goddess or a demon that you have to stab. So take your pick.
2: Yeah. (laughs) But that shows just how uh, weird old myths are, where maybe they're both at the same time. It just depends on the time of day. Right. Uh, But anyway, so there's that. There's my most recent essay was in Blood Knife, where I critiqued or offered a critical review of The Goblin Emperor. And I am the host at Podside Picnic that if you want to listen to, we have a Patreon There are plenty of free episodes. And if you like what you hear in the free ones, please consider supporting us at patreon.com slash podside picnic. All
1: right. Well, thanks for coming on the show.
2: Well, thanks for inviting me on. It was a blast talking about mythology. I love it. Yeah.
1: And thank you for listening. That's all for this episode. If you like what you heard, head to patreon.com slash and support us. And be sure to listen next time when Gretchen Felker Martin returns to talk about how novels happen from start to finish. Until then,
2: keep writing good. This has been Write Good with Raquel S. Benedict. Hosted by Raquel S. Benedict and produced by Matt Keeley for KS Media LLC. Theme song by Surgery Head. This has been a Kitty Sneezes production. For comments and concerns, please write to us at writegood at kittysneezes.com. That is R-I-T-E-G-U-D at kittysneezes.com. If you'd like to support us, please visit our Patreon at patreon.com slash writegood. kittysneezes.com in color.